welcome to the Fat Emperor podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. A topic very close to my heart today because I have on the podcast Laura Dodsworth from the UK, a writer and photographer who's just done an amazing book, State of Fear, which delves into all the psychological manipulation that the governments, particularly in the UK, but we see it everywhere, have been using in order to make us believe that we're facing an existential threat when essentially, as Dr. John Lee, pathologist in the UK, has said quite correctly, it's in the envelope of a severe flu season. So, uh, Laura, great to meet you. And uh, I got your book here and have begun to read it, and it's stunning. So maybe give us a background on what made you do this. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Okay, well, what made me do it? If I'm really honest, what I'm always more drawn to investigate and to research and to create around is something that causes me discomfort, something that causes me tension. I'm not a photographer who photographs pretty landscapes and I I don't write haikus about love. I always go for the more thorny stuff, you know, Um, the taboos, the things that we want to push to the back of the darkest closet. Now, when Boris Johnson gave his speech to the nation on the 23rd of March, or as I call it, Fright Night in the book, I was scared. I was scared. I'd done quite a lot of research already into the epidemic. Um, I can't help it. My journalistic nose just takes me ferreting off to find out information for myself. And I understood that um, this was a virus that was going to spread and be lethal and be nasty and make people ill. I don't want to refute that it is a serious illness and the book isn't about that. But I had quite a kind of a balanced sense of risk. But there is something about your leader telling you in an emergency broadcast that you must stay at home and using very martial language that did that did get me. I kind of froze to my sofa. But there was also something about it which felt off. It just felt something just didn't feel right. And um, one exercise for the book was going through that speech with a couple of psychologists to look at his body language. And, you know, when you look at, when you watch it again with with hindsight, he does not look like he's comfortable. And this is a statesman who loves the camera. He loves the limelight, but he also likes to be liked. And it's so obvious that he doesn't believe what he's saying at times. Why? I don't know. I can't see into his heart, but something about it created a different type of alarm bell for me. And of course, we know in retrospect that when he said we were flattening the curve for three weeks, that was an enormous lie. You know, um, over a year on and one way or another, we're still here. So it wasn't three weeks. So what that did was create a different type of fear in me, which was a fear of authoritarianism and I started becoming very alert to the language um, that that was used in speeches and in advertising and in news reporting. And I became quite alive to a degree of manipulation. COVID is very age stratified. It's very patterned by underlying health conditions. But in all of the information and the advertising, there was a real democratization of risk. We were told we were all at risk. And I knew that wasn't the case. And if, you, if I asked you what the story of 2020 was, 
you might say COVID, you might say a pandemic. But for me, a storyteller, I was more interested in the underlying motivation, which was fear. For me, the story was about fear, why we were frightened, why the government might want to make us more frightened, why governments do that, who did it, what were the tactics and what were the impacts they had? And really importantly for me, what's the ethics of all of that? Sorry, Ivan, that was a massive introduction. No, that's great, Laura, and that's exactly it. And you kind of uh, culminated there in the in the key point, and you're absolutely right. This particular virus is nasty enough, as Dr. Lee said, it's in the envelope of a severe flu. And we see that in the mortality uh, generally around the world. Some countries are worse and some are less bad, but in general. But the real story, I agree with you, is the fear, the coercion, the totalitarian kind of leanings more than leanings even that's what for me is the big deal and i knew i'll give you a kind of a red letter day for me last summer so i knew from the chinese data and the uh, diamond princess the kind of petri ship where you got super spread i knew exactly what you say it's going to be massively aged stacked and you know people with copd diabetes and and other vulnerabilities to do with insulin resistance so i kind of knew that uh, back in march and then what really became fascinating in April is the three weeks was clearly a joke, that it wasn't three weeks, that it was going to go on and on and on. But the red letter day for me was, and it was pure, utter coercion and manipulation and made zero scientific sense. And that was in June, July, when the mask mandates came in. Because it was the middle of the summer, we knew it was seasonal and it had collapsed, the ICUs were empty, nothing was going on until next winter. That was an absolute guaranteed fact and they had to know it. But they brought in mandatory masks and I realised then last summer they're going to bridge to the winter with this theatre of masks that will make people feel there's something going on keep the thing alive until they get to the winter and there'll be a viral resurgence as normal and then they're back on the road and I realized then the disingenuous nature of this was massive so anyway sorry that was my rant but no that's that's really interesting one of the early false flags for me we could come back to it because I'm dying to pick up on some of the mask stuff but one of the early false flags for me was the censorship so Dr. Ian Ardis said really early on that IFRs were overstated at the beginning. And I, I read, uh, watched a video with him about um, his view of Diamond Princess and said we shouldn't rely too much on models, um, that the simulation can be weak. And of course, IFRs have come down to be in line with his early predictions. And I've, I've got those, uh, some of them in the appendices in the book, uh, Imperial Colleges and CDCs, and you can see how age stratified they are. Um, but the censorship of highly credible scientists from social media raised an alarm bell for me. Why would you take down videos with such well-respected scientists in their field that that didn't really make much sense to me and it's and that kind of thing actually is um what triggered alarm bells it's the, the streisand effect if you've heard of this right oh, so yeah. um yeah so if you if you take if you censor something if you take it out of the public domain there's a really good section of people a really good number of us who are going to look harder for it so it's i always think it's the missing story the missing data sets which are really interesting 
Lots yeah. of those in the book, actually, where freedom of information is never, just never replied to or evaded. And they're the ones I'm sure will be interesting. Um, but on to masks. Yeah, that was, I would love to know exactly what triggered the mandates. I spoke to an MP who, wanted, who wants to be anonymous in the book, who told me that he, he heard from Matt Hancock, our health secretary, that masks were brought in in order to encourage confidence because the economic bounce back wasn't as good as they wanted after the first lockdown. That is probably the most benign explanation I could think of, because it makes no sense um, as a public health measure at that stage in the summer. They did know more about outdoor transmission by then and with with where cases were. It just didn't make any sense. So a benign, benign interpretation would be it's to encourage confidence. But according to the MP, what they then noticed was that masks became a signal and that made people behave differently with each other. So there was um, a Commons committee questioning David Halpin, who's the head of the Behavioural Insights team in the UK, and Stephen Reicher, who's a behavioural scientist and psychologist on SPY-B. That's the advisory panel of behavioural scientists and other social scientists who feed into SAGE and the Cabinet. I hope I'm not spelling all that out too much. I don't know how much everyone will know all the acronyms. Um, And they were asked about masks and David Halpern referred to them in two ways within one sentence. He referred to them as a signal and that there's underlying evidence. And he did put signal first and he referred only to underlying evidence Now, interestingly, when my book was fact-checked, because it's gone through my publisher and editor and two fact-checkers, the publisher's been really rigorous with it. It was gruelling. One of the fact-checkers took issue with how I described the evidence for masks and directed me to the UK government's evidence for masks. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I've I've done a hell of a lot of research. I didn't find any evidence presented by the government in favour of masks. Let's check this out. I checked out, this is not evidence at all. In fact, quite the opposite. But people sometimes think that guidance or recommendation is the same as evidence when it is not. In fact, the UK government's own webpage says, there is no published research from randomised controlled trials on the role of masks or face coverings worn by the general population in the transmission of SARS-CoV-2. The evidence to support their use is weak making accurate estimates of the degree of protection offered by face masks based on the available evidence is not possible at the moment. And they may offer some limited protection in some contexts. So that's the best evidence that the government can produce in favour of masks, which is not good. So we know that they were brought in for psychological reasons and we know they've stayed for psychological reasons. I think my own opinion is that masks make us walking billboards for fear. If you go out, every time you see a mask, it's a reminder that there's an epidemic, that there's danger. Plus, if you if you went to the supermarket and you didn't contract COVID, ah, it's because of your mask. Or you went on public transport and you survived. Aha, it's the mask. So they're, they're self-perpetuating um, items, vestiges of faith that support the idea that you're surviving because you're wearing them, but also that everyone else is dangerous. Yeah, they're, they're pure religion, there's no doubt. And absolutely, the government, in fairness, were quite honest, but they they pulled some punches. The reality is that 40 years of science trials and all the science has come up with the answer, there's nothing to see here. 
essentially. And then the RCT that was done in Denmark, again, for SARS-CoV-2, showed there's nothing to see here. So the massive preponderance of the science says there's nothing here. That means something that has that kind of lack of evidence, because you can never prove they do nothing, should never, ever be mandated by law. It's absurd. It's insane. And, you know, I heard that one about, well, it'll make people feel more comfortable and get them back in the stores. And I almost fell for it. And then I said, hold on a minute. They don't need to do that to get people back in the stores. They need to just stop inflicting fear with their propaganda. They could easily get people back in the stores back then. So I realized that's another kind of ploy. That wasn't really true. The reason was the system had kicked into gear and it was clear that the system wanted to keep going. For whatever reasons, we won't get into conspiracy theory and we know there's a lot of international organizations that have lobbied, influenced very successfully to keep this thing going, right? But we won't, we won't get into that. The masks were clearly part of, a, of that kind of infrastructure of fear, of keeping it alive, of keeping people thinking there's a pandemic. Um, and I thought they really wanted it so they could get people to stay in fear until the winter, whereupon there would be a resurgence and then they could go through this dance again. Uh, but now it looks like they almost want it indefinitely. I don't know. I mean, I, I really wish I knew. I'm, I'm incredibly curious slash nosy. I am dying to know exactly what was going on with masks. Um, in, but in defense of the Dan mask study, I interviewed one of the authors. It is possible that that study is slightly statistically underpowered to show that masks work, but let's just say it's statistically insignificant um, that, that masks protect mask wearers. And then everyone goes, ah, oh, but it's to protect others, but oh, it's aerosol transmission, so whatever. Anyway, the evidence is at best flyweight for masks. Um, and I well, think that I they... Oh, just a quick thing, actually, I just published another, I didn't publish personally, there's another one out of the US a few days ago, very comprehensive analysis of all the curves of spread across both seasons across the US, and it came out unequivocal. Uh, they looked at the top and bottom quintiles, and the masks have, if any effect, it's effectively immeasurable. And a huge data involved. So, yeah, the Dan mask on its own. But if you add them all together, there's nothing credible supporting anything within a million miles of justifying mandates. And the vast majority says there's nothing to see here. That's as good as it gets in science. Forget about it. It's such an illiberal position to impose a piece of cloth over someone's face when there are so many disadvantages, so many harms that it can cause. I know some people say, but I like my mask. I don't mind wearing it. And I wouldn't I would say they shouldn't be banned if somebody wants to wear a mask, although previously thought that we thought that was a terrible idea for teachers or people in banks, you know, where they look like robbers or something. Um, but you know, fine if you want to wear one, but it is an enormous imposition on other people, people who struggle to communicate without or people who feel uncomfortable with them on or who might be disabled. It's it's really quite astonishing. And I think that they will make recovery 
so much harder because they are this constant visual reminder and signal. There is this behavioral psychology aspect to them. And I don't see how we move on until we drop some of the rituals of fear, which are things like the dots on the floor and the masks, all these signals which are supposed to encourage a level of compliance with rules, um, remind you to uphold certain practices that were considered safer until we let go of them. We're not really going to recover as a society and in terms of our, you know, in terms of getting back to normal, real normal. Well, getting back to real normal and it, that's the thing so you mentioned your first signs of concern one of my first signs of concern but i didn't yet get concerned but my problem solving kind of brain which pattern recognizes saw something uh, incongruous and it was actually way back in march before the whole thing went crazy and i noticed a couple of times uh, in ireland actually there were television main media discussions and interviews where several times it was mentioned, we'll never be going back to the old normal. Now, I looked at that and it caught my attention because it made no sense. How on earth, before we even saw the impact of society, which I kind of knew would be a severe flu equivalent from Diamond Princess and all the other data, how could they actually start stating things like this? Th those kinds of statements would never come out of one of these media guys' brains. That came from somewhere. That conceit, that, that, that sentiment was fed from somewhere. I knew that and I found it surprising. Now, later on, <laughs> we all kind of know now where that stuff came from. Uh, but that was it. But Sage, if you take Sage now from your book, you go through in great detail who, they're, who makes them up. They're overwhelmingly, there's all this dominance of behavioral psychologists and a whole load of types of professions that have, should really have no place in a, an epidemic management kind of group? Well, um, well, first of all, I completely agree with you about new normal. That was one of the, I said I was alert to language and it was one of the early signs for me too, because Dominic Raab, he's the first politician I noticed saying it, but he referred to the new normal within four weeks of the first lockdown. So, you know, about three quarters of the way through April. And I thought, what do you mean, new normal? Because it's a very significant term. It implies a new term, a new epoch, a new era. It does not imply that you're returning to your former life. It's a bit like something like the Third Reich. And I'm not making a crazy Nazi comparison, mm -hmm. but it's a deliberate term to imply you're moving on from what you had to something new. And I thought, well, hang on, why would you do that? Apparently, respiratory diseases follow bell curves. Why would, you know, even if it's going to take a year, even if it's going to take longer, why would you say that we'll never go back to normal? That's interesting. Um, but you say we know where we came, where it came from. We don't actually, we don't, we don't know where the source of that is. It was around the world. And that's really interesting. But I don't, do you think you know unequivocally where well, new normal comes from? Well, I think the clearest uh, evidence or trail goes back to the World Economic Forum because, you know, they were writing the book, uh, COVID-19, The Great Reset, which is the new Reich, as you might say. And they've documented, you know, Klaus Schwab um, and also the Rockefeller Institute. And I think it's WEF again. They actually set up Common Pass, which became the COVID Pass. And that was set up in mid nineteen you know, and began to come alive in October 19, and then really took off in March. 
So I think there's a history there of the concept of new normals. And I think Mr. Gates himself said clearly in early April, we're never going back until everyone in the whole world is vaccinated. And it may be years. So there are lots of people stating that the old normal was behind us, you know, quite openly. Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, I mean, I will just say that with the book and the research I did for it, I I don't go into why. I don't know why. I think it's I think it's too soon to know. My book is about how. It's not it's not why we're in a state of fear. It's how we got here. How how did the government? How did the media get us into this state of fear? I think that the why is probably like everything going to end up being really complicated, really multifactorial. Um, it's going to be disaster capitalism, shock doctrine, vested interests, cronyism. I also think that our leaders have felt fear and they wield using fear when they're frightened themselves. Um, I think they're going to be, I think it's going to be complicated and it's going to take time to emerge. And it's way too soon for a book about that. What I was, I really wanted to understand and help other people to understand is what level of manipulation is happening to make people be more frightened than they should be and to understand the ethics behind that. Yeah, absolutely, Laura. And you're right, because all of that stuff, I'm kind of interested in it, but I don't talk too much about it again because it's early and because it can be perceived as conspiracy-like. But the beauty of the book is I think people need to be armed with the knowledge of the how because at the end of the day, if there's a lot of bad organizations uh, driving kind of <laughs> craziness, if you will, people can't really deal directly with that, but they can deal with making themselves more immune to the psychological tricks that are being used to subvert their intelligence. I mean, to be quite honest, I've often used the word blamange. <laughs> I like that word. Uh, people's brains, 70 or 80% of people maybe, their brains have been turned into blancmange as far as I'm concerned, and using very specific and very scientific methods, strategies, and tactics. And I think that's what people don't realize. They think all the politicians just got scared and, and everyone just went mad. But it's not the case. This has been orchestrated in a quite scientific way, which you reveal in this book. So maybe we'll circle back to, to these players uh, in the leadership roles and behind the scenes in Sage, etc., and the kind of things they use to basically puppeteer almost the population. Yeah, I think it would be a real mistake to think that this is new and... It actually, for me, a lot of the things I learned in this book were new to me. Um, it's it's part revelatory, part polemic, part gonzo journalism, because I'm in it, I'm in the fear now, and I'm trying to understand it. And it's not new for governments to use fear to create docility in a population. And that can be supposedly in your best interests. It's always in your best interests. You talked about theatre earlier, and... Um, you know, we can look most recently to the war on terror. We still take off our shoes, hand over our water bottles and our tweezers at airport security, and it's a complete pantomime of safety. And actually, your risk of dying in a terrorist attack in the UK is one in 11 and a half million per year, going back as far as the 1970s. We're not at any great risk of dying in a terrorist attack, but we've had very permanent changes to surveillance 
to the ability to hold somebody without um, a reason, um, to, the, to the kind of checks that we subject ourselves to, to travel. And there's nothing wrong with fear. It's, you know, you said it turns people's brains to a monge. Well, there are reasons for that. Your blood leaves your brain to go to your limbs so that you can fight or flight. I'm more of a freezer. I think that's the embarrassing one. But, you know, um, be very useful one day if I come across a bear, bear, I'll just flop to the ground and I'll think I'm dead or something. Oh, God, maybe that's the wrong thing to do with a bear. I don't know. Anyway, I know I froze to the sofa on the 23rd of March. But you, your fear response is hardwired into you. It's part of our evolutionary success. Telling people not to be frightened would be ludicrous. The problem is when fear is not calibrated to the threat. And the problem is when people deliberately manipulate your fear. Now, if this was done in our own best interest, it's still something we've never been consulted on. In the past, there were calls to consult the public in the UK on the use of behavioral psychology, because behavioral psychology will guide you into a form of behavior you never knew you wanted to take. It subliminally manipulates you. By the end of the book, I'll just cut to the chase. I get to the point where I say it's anti-democratic. I think it actually undermines humanity to humanity's struggle to work out what the good life is. It's up to us to determine what being an ideal human is, what being a model citizen is, what choices we want to make. And there's behavioral psychology strips your choice away. Fear is the most destabilizing tool in the behavioral psychology toolbox. And that's because it does affect your rational mind. So I think we were in a situation over the last year where we were fear bombed and love bombed, fear bombed and love bombed. So be frightened. It's the greatest threat in peacetime. You're all at risk. <gasps> Four days later, we're clapping on the doorsteps for the NHS. That's being that's love bomb. That's adulation. Then it's like COVIDiots. If you don't if you don't follow the rules, you're going to kill everybody. Granny killers. Then it's COVID heroes. Where interestingly, being heroic is just doing exactly what you're told and staying inside your house. Not our former version of a hero at all. Um, Another reason it'd be a mistake to think this is new is not just because governments have always done it, and I give a few examples in the book, but this, it, the structure is there within governments. And I came across a lot of brick walls trying to investigate, but I, I did find certain units. There's RICU, this is the Home Office's Re Research Information and Communications Unit. And they set out to change attitude and behaviour by working with grassroots organisations. Sometimes the grassroots organisations don't even know they're working with the government because there's an agency in between. And I was lucky enough to find somebody who has written the propaganda plans and somebody who's worked for an agency that worked for RICU. And I outlined some of the things they've done before that I think people will be really, really shocked by. It's called controlled spontaneity. Things that you might have thought were just a genuine outpouring of emotion were actually pre-canned, pre-canned by the government. There's the counter disinformation cell. There's the rapid response unit. There's GCHQ and there's the 77th Brigade, which is part of the army. They're all involved in um, shaping attitudes, information, countering disinformation. There's some crossover between what they'll do, and it's quite hard to work it out. I spoke to the media person for the 77th, and he was as polite, charming, lovely, and evasive as you'd expect a major of the British Army to be. So we didn't get too far, but they engage in non-lethal um, psychological operations and counter-terrorism. So... In addition to that, you then have SPY-B and their behavioral scientists and social scientists 
on the scientific pandemic influenza group for behavior and that reports into sage i think during the last year they've had a lot of attention and they've been kind of wrongly characterized as villains i don't like how all of them think i'll be honest and i've interviewed some of them but they're not really necessarily villains um, and they're just one advisory panel. It's quite easy to say, oh, Spy B wants to frighten us. But that you've got to bear in mind, there is a whole structure within governments that is populated by behavioural scientists. There are behavioural scientists in the cabinet office. They're in 10 different government departments and they're recruiting all the time. It is a big part of how the government does business. So there are various tactics that we saw in the last year that created alarm. That was the misleading use of statistics and cherry picking data. I would say that even the way the COVID dashboard is constructed floats the most scary, big and lumpy numbers to the top. And they're not provided contextually in terms of how many people died of other diseases that day. So that creates a kind of an availability bias in your head. You're only thinking about COVID deaths, COVID deaths, COVID deaths in every news report, never any context. Um, the advertising in the last year was particularly shocking. Um, and the UK government and Public Health England became two of the biggest advertisers in the UK. So some examples were um, don't let a coffee cost lives. It's just so hyperbolic. It's hard to know what to say. And there was also no point at which having a coffee with a friend was illegal. Um, so to discourage people from doing something which might have been a real mental health lifeline is cruel. That's one that really pissed me off. I can't remember the exact wording, but it was about joggers. Joggers are spreading COVID in the park. It wasn't exactly that, but basically, and I was like, are you kidding me? If you're lucky enough to breathe my exhalations, you're all right. I'm out running for miles because I'm really fit and healthy. I've got nothing going on with my lungs right now. Um, anyway, that ad had to be withdrawn. There were complaints to the Advertising Standards Authority. There was look him in the eyes and tell him you always keep a safe distance and look her in the eyes and tell her you never bend the rules. And the ads were these really crazy close-ups of faces with face masks on and they were very grainy and very scary and I think what was particularly objection about those ads was it puts all the blame for the spread of a virus on the person who's breaking the rules whereas the people who broke the rules you know if we're ever going to be able to quantify this I suspect they're going to be a minority part of the spread of the epidemic but that creates ill will and blame between people between us between the demos the ads were often very grainy, black and white. They'd have black and yellow chevrons, like disaster cordons or like wasps. They say, danger, this will hurt, don't cross. Stay on your side of the line, don't cross, don't break the rules. That, that litany, it's the exact same in Ireland. And, and I had somewhat of an insight because, well, I'm nearly 20 years people managing. So, and I also have an interest technically in, in psychology uh, and that side of the things. It's not all uh, just met metabolism. So between the management experience and having an interest in psychology, you know, I was able to recognize a lot of what you're describing there. As all of this was rolling out, it was quite clearly coercive management of the population. I mean, clear as day. In fact, sometimes I thought, you know, it was a little sloppy in places and other times it was so over the top, I thought it might backfire, but it didn't. So like I'm watching this with horror since last summer and recently after the second wave, a short seasonal wave collapsed in Ireland, like in England, naturally. Uh, our main broadcaster, RTE, brought out a horror 
series of adverts just like you described showing a lady with her shopping an elderly lady and a guy stops and says oh here i'll give you a lift and then you could hear hospital beep sounds and see a mask you know you had people saying oh let's have a quick cup of tea sure we can do it outside out the back in the outdoors and then it cuts to the beeps and someone in a hospital icu unit i mean this is like (laughs) it's jumping the shark spectacularly and yet they did it they they it's pure propaganda and pure psychological manipulation and just to your other one other point i'll say vastly out of step with the actual real world risks because for ireland now with two full seasons over a year around 50 to 60 percent of people have either had it or got a vaccine we have huge positivity rates in each season of 25% of PCRs were positive. We know it's riddled Ireland. So now we can look at what the risk is. And we have the numbers, right? For below 70s overall, it's around one in seven and a half thousand. For below 50s overall, it's one in 50,000. And below 25 year olds, it's one in 280,000. The risks are, no disrespect to people who passed, they're tiny by anyone's standard. That's real world risk. And yet look at what we've just described, what, what they're telling us. I think that the hand has been overplayed a lot. And mm. I interviewed a variety of experts for the book. So lawyers, civil rights experts, scientists, psychologists, behavioral scientists, a, a panoply of experts. And there are a couple of the psychologists um, and a sociologist who told me they thought that the use of fear at the beginning was acceptable in order to shock people into certain form of behavior. Now that's a position you can take if you can argue that it's ethical and there's a net benefit for society. It's not a position I agree with, but I accept that other people could think that's reasonable. And I'd say we need that debate out in the open, but they all felt that time passed really quickly. And I think that the hand is overplayed because just recently we had Sage predict that in the UK, there'd be 10,000 hospital admissions per day by mid-July which seems ludicrous for the time of year and for the level of community immunity we should be at. And if the vaccination programme rolls out according to the plan, it it doesn't really make any sense. So coming out with worst case scenarios, I I think that might have been mid-range, at this stage just looks a little bit, it looks a bit desperate or out of touch with what people really think. Um, Same with the variants. I think that it might be that the people talking about the variants, maybe maybe they're still gripped by anxiety themselves. Maybe that's why they're doing it. But if it's to alarm people to continue to follow with the rules for this, you know, this final push, I think it risks undermining health. Well, risk. it's It's undermined my trust in public health and in government. And I think that you know, it's the ethical bedrock of medicine should be informed consent. And another place where I think we've seen a real overplaying of the hand is in the encouragement of vaccine uptake. I've been watching this around the world, but not not just the UK, but some of the methods to encourage people to have it are really emotionally manipulative. There was um, an NHS document that was revealed that gave example wording to public health people to encourage, encourage others to have the vaccine. And 
saying things like this is the only way to go back to normal or this is how you can hug someone again is emotional manipulation and that is not how people should be consenting to medical treatment we're seeing the word refuse nick a lot which again is kind of othering and dehumanizing it's saying which team do you want to be on the use of social conformity is is um, something that's been used a lot during the epidemic you know with covidiots and heroes and mask wearers and nasty selfish people who don't who don't wear them and then you've got the good people who have the vaccine and then the refuseniks who don't i have a medical reason why i can't have the vaccine and even if i didn't have that i still think that my decision should be my personal choice but as somebody who can't have it i'm really fascinated by this language because like oh okay so i'd be somebody who'd be excluded from theaters and bars and holidays because i'm a refusenik it's very it's very dehumanizing and this doesn't tend to play out well in history when you demonize a group of people for not behaving in the way that the leaders think they should yeah and the exception is when you have a totalitarian regime you can get away with doing that because you have full power but in a liberal democracy in the west i agree laura it's absolutely horrifying i mean i've kind of called this last summer um, not to say that i I, I arrogantly say I called it, but I told a group of professionals that I work with or used to work with in the WhatsApp group. And I told them around July, pretty much this is largely about the vaccine because the investment that's gone into it and the political desire for that to be the solution when it becomes available, they're going to want everyone to take it. So I said, prepare to be marched down and your whole family, even though this is a old and frail person's disease, prepare to be marched down and told you got to get it. Now, I said that last June, July, and they were saying, oh, come on. They're not saying, oh, come on now, are they? And the reason is I just saw all the patterns and the way it was going, that the lockdowns, the masks, and a lot of what we talked about had to have an end point because they made no scientific sense. And then I loosely assumed it'll be linked to vaccines and probably the passports because I became aware last May of a COVID pass. People sent me stuff and I thought, how can they be coming out with COVID passes to fly and do all this stuff so quickly? So, and the Rockefeller Institute. But your Irish one was out super early, the one that's all in green colours that so looks really green yeah. and eco and friendly and lovely. It's like a cartoony thing. Yeah, I saw that yeah. one. That was so out you know that, very early, that, considering. Absolutely, absolutely, Laura. And the other funny thing about that was people apparently back then weren't as stupid as they are now because it got so many dislikes. It was something like 2,000 dislikes and around two likes, and they had to stop the comments on it. I mean, it was utterly attacked last April, May. And yet here we are now, and people, that's why I think Blamange, people seem to all think, oh, yeah, this is maybe a good idea. It's an absurd idea for a severe flu-like illness. We're going to bring in ID cards and permits for everyone. I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so outlandish and absurd. I have to pinch myself, but here we are. Well, Robert Higgs talks about this in his book, Crisis and Leviathan, that during a crisis, the government gets bigger, it ratchets up. 
it's not necessarily even that one person is pulling some strings and puppeteering the whole thing. It's just what government does. It gets bigger. And as soon as they appointed a vaccine minister, I thought, oh, okay, this is interesting. I wonder if this will be a permanent or a temporary measure. And what does this, what does this mean for an approach to vaccinations and IDs? And I think this one has been shared already online, but I found this and I put it in the book. There's a, a European Union roadmap for the implementation of actions strengthening cooperation against vaccine preventable diseases so it's a really long report title which proposes countering vaccine hesitancy and the development of a common eu vaccination card followed by a vaccination card followed by an electronic vaccination card and information system and according to the dates in this roadmap we're totally on schedule and the, the digital version should be recognised for use across borders by 2022. So this is, this is what I was saying earlier about vested interests. Um, they coalesce. You get a constellation of interests that can coalesce, I'm using the same word again, around the crisis, and everyone's pushing their own agendas forward. So that could, that could absolutely be happening. But if COVID has been a horrible story, you can't write a happy ending in the language of coercion and, man, and manipulation. So you, you cannot write a happy ending in, in language like Refuseniks or there was a, a, a title of a, um, a newspaper article here. When will we start? When will we turn on the unvaccinated? It's this is not going to be a happy ending if that's the attitude we have towards dividing people up into different segments of society, basically the clean and the unclean. Uh, yeah, exactly. And and I kind of sensed that that was coming uh, quite a while back, but I also saw the EU document you mentioned, I think that was last summer, and that those documents uh, were part of a form, my opinion, that we're heading towards where we are now, because it was already documented, Rockefeller, WEF, the Gavi Vaccine Alliance, the EU document. I mean, so much stuff was sent to me and it was all published. There was no conspiracy theory. And I realized, okay, I didn't realize this was so huge around the world. The problem is a lot of these things, if you go back deeper, you know, it's it's kind of pharma, WHO, and a lot of industrial and corporate partners that come together over the years that tend to kind of be the origins or the genesis of these plans. It's not really an obsession with public health. A lot of it's commercially connected. But in any case, you know, here's where we are. But you're absolutely right. The, la the language, the methodology of, of coercion and psychological manipulation, which we should give permission for, I love that about the book that it called out. We should be voting as a free democratic people and allowing the government to use scientific tools, powerful tools to subvert us. You know, but to, to have all of these tools being used and no one ever approved them. I mean, it's literally shady dealing behind the doors of government rather than, hmm, yeah, there have been calls for consultation before, and I think they mustn't remain in the pre-pandemic past. I want to use the book as an opportunity to call for consultation. I don't know realistically what the chances that are, because there'll be an inquiry into the epidemic next year, and the use of fear may well end up being part of that. But it's not just about the use of fear in this epidemic. The reason I think it took off as much as it did is because behavioural psychology is so embedded across government now. And 
we really do need to be consulted on what techniques are acceptable and whether they're ethical or not. I interviewed people who've been quite undone by fear in the last year, people who've developed agoraphobia, OCDs, self-harm, and even attempted suicide. And doing that to people is just not, it's just not, it's not acceptable. Well, you know, that's exactly it. And I know we wanted to keep this one tight, Laura. So that's, that's probably a good point to draw to a close. But I would also say that, I mean, this book, The How, everyone needs to be armed with the detail of these psychological methods and the actual true history of how this thing was orchestrated, you know, over the past year. Because I think if everyone understood this, like talk about a vaccine or an inoculation, if everyone was inoculated with understanding this, you know, they'd actually be, they'd be completely immune to the tactics of fear that were used or will be used in the future. So I think it's a... Once you, yeah. once you understand them, you can spot them. And it is, I think of this as being like an anti-nudge guide. It's like your handbook to avoid being manipulated. It's so useful. I don't think, I think I'm now impervious to... Uh, to brainwashing of any sort, um, having researched the book. And I, and I really think it will help people wake up and just avoid falling into that trap again. Absolutely. And, you know, I, some of us had an advantage, just my 30 years of forged in the corporate fire, as I say, and management and skullduggery. It, I was just lucky in the sense that I was kind of immune to this nonsense anyway. But no disrespect to the vast majority of people, but they, they're not immune to this, especially when it's so, you know, professionally carried out by whole departments and groups that you go through. But absolutely inoculate yourself against this stuff in the future because more of it's coming down the line. <laughs> Make no mistake about it. It doesn't, it doesn't stop here even after they do an inquiry um this stuff ain't gonna it's like you say it's part of governments now and the enormous success of this last year where they brought it up to a scale hitherto undreamed of but the success of that is going to fuel them to use it more in the future so guys get inoculated quickly <laughs> thank you very much Thanks a lot, Laura. And um, I'm going to finish off reading this. My wife absolutely loved it, which is a very good sign. She's quite a harsh judge. And uh, everyone, oh, we'll just tell people where to get it, where are the best places to get the book. Yeah, well, just all the normal. Um, internationally, Wordery is good. Obviously, there's Amazon as well. Um, depends on the country you're in. Here in this country, there's Hive, which you can, um, which links up with independent booksellers. But it should be in any normal bookseller. And if they're out of stock, because it has gone out of stock twice already, there's more stock coming. It's sold out on the first day, and then the second print run sold out, and now it's on the third print run. So it's doing really well. Um, but they're keeping the stock up and um, there'll be more in the shops from Monday. Excellent, Laura. And indeed, it should do well. And hopefully I get this out. It'll do even better in a small way. Uh, but perfect, Laura. And I'm so delighted you covered this. We're making a movie about COVID chronicles. We may do a book, but this whole topic absolutely needed a book uh, unto itself. So thanks so much, Laura. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye now. All right. Cheers. Bye. Hope you enjoyed our conversation and all the insights. And don't forget to subscribe and also to hit that little bell icon to make sure you're informed and 
get to counter some of the more corporate style science that's out there. So all the links are in the description box below and also really appreciate all my PayPal and Patreon supporters and anyone else who can continue to support me to provide all the material that I do. It's highly appreciated. So thank you.